For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. Oklahoma Attorney General Mike Hunter is turning his attention to opioid distributors. The state filed a lawsuit against three major distributors, accusing them of helping fuel the state's opioid crisis by oversupplying the drug. The lawsuit comes after a successful challenge against manufacturers last year. Ryan, do you think this lawsuit will be as successful? Yeah, I think it will be. I think that this is part of a full court press by the state of Oklahoma against uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers that if they knew, uh, which it looks like they did, you know, what the state's alleging is that they had controls and mechanisms in place to know where the supply was going, who was asking for the supply, and the amount that was being ordered uh, and distributed in the state of Oklahoma was beyond what any reasonable person should have thought as as what 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 the actual need is versus you know just overprescribing and creating this dangerous opioid, deadly opioid epidemic that we have in the state of Oklahoma. A couple of important differences here: the the law, the lawsuit that went to trial that had a verdict down in Norman. This one's going to be a little bit different because that one was looking for abatement. You know, the damages there were looking forward. What was it going to take for the state to fix this problem that the opioid manufacturers and distributors created? This one's looking for damages looking backwards. So it's damages that have already been done. Okay. Uh, and so that creates, you know, that's that's going to be a different figure there. It's probably not going to be as big of a figure as we saw with the, the verdict down in Norman. And, you know, and that's still in appeal. I mean, there's a really great segment. I, I'm sure you can find it on KOSU.org. Rachel Hubbard and Jackie Fortier go through in detail about all of these settlements and uh, jury ver- or not uh, or not jury verdicts, but verdicts mm-hmm. out of the uh, the Cleveland County trial. It's a great segment to get a sense of where things are at right now because it's really complicated and it's probably just going to get more complicated <laughs> moving forward. Neva, <laughs> absolutely, and I and I think it is important to note that even though the attorney general didn't have these uh, uh, distributors uh, in the initial in the initial uh, lawsuits, what we what we are seeing across the country is that there are many states that have already kind of uh, combined these and already are in this type of litigation. So this isn't something new. I mean, these folks are have the exposure nationwide. In fact, uh, it's interesting in some instances uh, there have been lawsuits brought against uh, entities such as Walmart, Walgreens, uh, uh, CVS, Rite Aid. I mean, some of the the chain drugstores and the superstores in connection with uh, the, these same opioid lawsuits. So whether Oklahoma and the attorney general decide to to um, go that direction on suits similar to what's going on in other parts of the country, we'll wait and see. But Ryan is right. It's a very complex, uh, very involved uh, uh, matter of litigation that is, is so comprehensive when you look at just the sheer numbers nation, nationwide and the, you know, and the price tag that's going to be associated with it ultimately as these things uh, move through the court process and and get judgments in in many instances probably so um, I I think that it's uh, in terms of Oklahoma it is clear that the Attorney General is still you know very aggressive in pursuing uh, pursuing these uh, matters uh, related to opioids. And when we think about the 6,000 Oklahomans who have lost their lives Mm -hmm. uh, as a direct result of this, uh, it is incumbent upon the AG to to fully litigate this to the best of his ability and his staff. Yeah, absolutely. And as Jackie Fortier reported, 
no dollar, not a single penny yet, though, has been right. distributed to cities, to counties, to the state of Oklahoma uh, to actually combat or deal with or treat the opioid epidemic in the state of Oklahoma. So, you know, as as the, the litigation's part of this, the administration of the monies that the attorney general is able to recover here, that's going to be totally different. That's going to bring in questions of the legislature and the governor, you know, possible you know boards that have to be created to oversee the expenditures of these dollars. You know, that's something that that's a process that, you know, needs to start uh, as fast as possible because, you know, there's an urgency here. I mean, the attorney general has talked about that. There's an urgency to getting those dollars out the door and into treatment and to abate this problem that we're seeing in Oklahoma. The governor's task force on criminal justice comes out with recommendations to reduce the prison population in Oklahoma, but also call for a one-year extension. The Reentry Supervision, Treatment, and Opportunity Reform Task Force, also known as RESTORE, recommends creating a chief cultural officer within the Department of Corrections and creating an accredited seminary or Bible college program for the correction system. Neva, what do you think of this report? Well, I think the report is uh, uh, just a, a very uh, preliminary report, I guess you would say. I mean, the, the, the uh, task force, by, by its own admission, uh, after it was created a year ago by executive order by Governor Stitt, uh, they have uh, they put a lot of work in, but they know that there's a lot of work ahead of them. And rather than just rush rush to put together a typical task force document that throws out a few recommendations and doesn't really have a comprehensive look and plan going forward for the long term, I think they I think they were very wise in saying we need more time. And when you look at all of the stakeholders that are among the 15 members of this task force, you have all of the major entities and players involved that have to, uh, at some point, uh, begin to develop a united front if they're going to effectively address this. And we can talk all, all we want about the fact that prevention is the key and we need to deal with, you know, preventing childhood trauma and allowing, you know, a, uh, uh, trying to uh, uh, deal with adverse childhood experiences and all of these things. Yes, we've identified that that is at the core of many of the issues that move toward long-term, the incarceration problem and everything else, but you don't fix generational problems overnight, and I think that's what these folks wisely are getting a handle on, and uh, the the preliminary report uh, is, I think, just that. I mean, it's what we see moving forward if they can aggressively really look at uh, what would be really seismic changes in in this whole concept and, and this whole thought process. Ryan, you know, I think that if you look at the members of the Restore Task Force and the governor, you know, what this really does, it's signals that this is a priority for this governor. And I think that that's, that is important. I really believe that he has a good faith intention to change Oklahoma's broken criminal justice system. That said, this report is incredibly disappointing. And we have left-right coalition partners from around the nation and right here in Oklahoma that have been putting forward solid uh, criminal justice reform measures for the legislature to consider for years now. I mean, we, we have studied this ad nauseum, and we've, we've had some of the nation's leading experts come into Oklahoma and say, these are things that you could do to move the needle. And then we get a report that you know, says we need another year. Well, we can't wait another year. And we, we know things that would change the system right now. I mean, they even talk about bail reform in there, but they don't give any sort of uh, re, you know, real specifics on how to change the pretrial system. There is Senate Bill 252 that's still alive this legislative session. It would have been great if the Restore Task Force would have said, move 252, th- two, Senate Bill 252 
through the legislature this year and get it on the governor's desk as soon as possible. It would have been great if they'd said, we need to fund indigent defense. We need to look at alternatives to incarceration. We need to stop criminalizing people like people that use drugs. We're criminalizing people that use drugs instead of looking at them as either responsible adults or people that need substance abuse treatment. And then finally, you know, to the, the Bible college and the seminary, you know, to me, to look at Angola uh, in Louisiana, you know, the one state that we compete with for the bottom of the barrel instead of the 48 other states, we look to them for inspiration. It's like getting your business plan from Enron. We've got to do better <laughs> here. And, you know, to me, that that was just kind of a throwaway line. I don't even know what that means. It's it's such a ridiculous proposal when there are so many other credible things that this task force could have recommended. And even but, without, a, without an actual roadmap, though, what do lawmakers do? They were counting on this to do something. If they got to well, wait another well, year. Well, I, I don't know that they were exclusively counting on this. Yes, if there had been specific concrete proposals uh, that had legislative uh, elements to it, yes, that would have been something that would have maybe put things on a, a different track or a faster track. But, but you have legislators who have spent several years themselves, I mean, addressing this problem, looking into you know, what has uh, been successful and unsuccessful around the country and trying to really uh, grapple with this, uh, you know, from the criminal justice reform side in the legislature. So it's not an either-or proposition. I think when you look at the task force, when you have every, I mean, when you have uh, corrections and mental health and pardon and parole and DA and sheriff and and uh, DHS and uh, all, all of these different, uh, all of these different folks that are at the table, the courts and you know, representatives of this vast array of folks that that uh, bring their 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 point of view and the people that they they work with their point of view getting a consensus. I mean, the one thing that could be vitally important for this task force is when they do reach a consensus and they do have a strong report to, to move forward, I think it's going to have a lot of credibility and I think it's going to get people's attention. But right now, they've got to get the stakeholders, uh, by and large, to sort through these very complex problems where they have very differing points of view in many instances and come up with something that's a real consensus. Ryan, how much do you think lawmakers were looking at something like a task force? You know, I, I think that uh, you know a task force like this, especially I mean, if, if we hadn't studied this issue, if we didn't already know what we need to do as a state, uh, you know, then a task force to me makes a lot of sense. But we already know. We already know there are key things that we could be doing to move the needle. And, you know, Neva's uh, comment about that these are generational issues, I totally agree. I think that a large majority of those generational issues, though, are driven by failures in that criminal justice system to begin with. I think that this task force, more than anything else, was an attempt to create some sort of political cover for lawmakers so that they could point to a uh, a bipartisan, nonpartisan task force as the uh, the you know the the place where these ideas uh, emanated from. Uh, but really, they don't need that political cover because the people of Oklahoma, through things like State Question 780, their continued insistence on reforms, the people of Oklahoma are there. They've already got the political cover. They just need to do it. The two initiative petitions awaiting approval to start collection signatures to make recreational marijuana legal are facing pushback from the medical marijuana industry. And some opponents see the petitions as a threat to their newly legal way of life. Ryan, you're a proponent for state question 807. But Correct. I do want to ask, how could recreational marijuana hurt medical marijuana? Well, I think that that's a really good question. I think that there is some real anxiety out there for commercial operators in the medical marijuana community. I think that that anxiety, though, is being driven by misinformation by a handful of folks that are really trying to protect their own bottom line here. They're trying to put their profits over uh, a, a system that would reform a 
critical component, a critical broken component of Oklahoma's criminal justice system, and would invest tens of millions of dollars into education and healthcare in the state of Oklahoma. You know, there's this sense of, of just economic protectionism, and, and it's really, I think, you know, built around a bunch of false assumptions. The only way that Oklahoma's medical co- commercial operators right now are really going to survive moving forward is if they have more customers. I mean, I think that that's, that's the bottom line. And, you know, so there are built-in protections here to make sure that Oklahomans succeed in this program. Uh, I, I can tell you that um, if we look at how this would roll out, if you're a medical commercial operator right now, you would have a two-year head start on every other person that would want to come in. You know, the, the small mom and pop folks that, uh, that have invested a lot of their money into these operations and these dispensaries, these grows, these processing operations. I'm a medical patient holder myself. I was an attorney for State Question 788. Uh, State Question 807 in no way has a negative impact on medical pro- the medical marijuana program in Oklahoma, but it would have an ancillary benefit to those medical operators and patients in the state. Neva? Well, I think it's going to be interesting because clearly there, <laughs> there, is, a, uh, there, there is a difference of opinion on that. And I think while you know Ryan makes the case one way, when you look at the state now has more than 200,000 medical uh, marijuana card holders, that's 5% of our entire population. I mean, how much more growth uh, you know, do, we, uh, do we anticipate seeing in, in uh, folks that want mar- you know, not only medical marijuana, but what would be the consequences of if full-blown legalization of marijuana. So, and I think, you know, as folks begin to do a little research, we get a lot more discussion out there about other states, what they've done, uh, Washington, you know, and, and, and what they did, Colorado. Uh, is, it, is it a case where, you know, one, one cardholder versus, um, you know, someone that just goes and, and has it if it was fully legalized? Uh, would there be different uh, consequences in terms of the cost? I mean, the taxes, I mean, all of these things that now are kind of bubbling up and in the conversation. And I think you have these other issues of, you know, with a medical marijuana card, a a minor, a uh, 17-year-old could have the card, but uh, um, in the instance of, you know, looking at just the, the the full, you know, full legal, legalized marijuana, it, that person wouldn't be able to uh, uh, to uh, benefit or, you know, be able to legally uh, uh, be able to buy and and uh, possess marijuana and and use it. So there are a lot of there are a lot of when you get into the specifics of this, I think that's where the challenge is going to be as this as this really heats up into a full blown campaign of, you know, will the confusion factor for folks that agreed that medical marijuana was something that voters were willing to go to the polls and and say yes to, will they be equally willing to go and just uh, be receptive to full-blown legalization? I think that's going to be the big question we're going to watch and see. And and Neva, you mentioned a 17-year-old. A 17-year-old or an 18-year-old or a 19-year-old, 2021-year-old that has a medical card today would still be able to get medical marijuana if 807 passes. All this says is that adult use, you know, people that don't have a medical card, 21 and over, would now have access. You know, so that's that's what it would, and it would create a 15% excise tax. I mean, I think that voters, and we've looked at other states, uh, you know, voters recognize that there's a difference between medicine, medic, uh, marijuana as a medicine, which I use, marijuana as a medicine, and marijuana as, an, as a recreational uh, substance for adults, 21 and over. And that's what 807 creates. So if you have a medical card today, your ability to get medical marijuana at a lower tax rate and under the same rights and conditions that you get it today is not affected by state question 
807 in you, any way. How do you break through the, the misinformation to, to, tell, to educate people on this? I mean, I think that it's a full-blown campaign. I mean, this is going to be a, a well-funded campaign. We're going to have to go talk to Oklahomans. We're going to have to talk to people that have medical cards already, like myself. We're going to have to talk to commercial operators. And then we're going to have to talk to voters. Because, you know, what we have right now, there's a sense that we already have recreational in Oklahoma right now. But we just don't. There are thousands of Oklahomans that are under the thumb of a broken criminal justice system as and, and people still go to jail and prison for marijuana offenses in the state of Oklahoma. That needs to stop. And we are not raising the kind of revenue that states like Colorado are raising for education and health care. That's where right now the money that we raise through medical marijuana largely goes to the administration of the program. That 15% excise tax and the sales tax created at local and county level and at the state level with the 15% tax, that's where we see the real kind of revenue that we're allowed to invest in education and health care that'll make a huge difference in the well, state. Well, but one of the things with consumers in Colorado when we talk about uh, legalized marijuana is that they saw increased taxes, they saw tighter regulations come into play. I mean, a lot of other issues that I think, again, as part of this education process on both sides of the on both sides of the coin, we're going to see uh, really have to ramp up because I think I think as folks pay more attention to this, there are going to be probably more questions than answers, at least on the front end. Governor Stitt wants the state superintendent to be appointed rather than elected. Currently, Oklahoma is one of only about a dozen states where the leader of public education is chosen by voters. To make the change would require passage of a constitutional amendment, which has yet to make it through the state capitol. Although Senate leader Greg Treat has pushed for the legislation in the past, Neva, with Stitt's endorsement, could this become a reality? Well, I think it'll be interesting to see. I mean, Oklahoma's gone back and forth on, on secondary statewide offices. I mean, we've had elected corporation commissioners and we've had, uh, you know, uh, appointed. We've had uh, elected labor commissioners. We've had appointed labor commissioners. I mean, you know, insurance commissioner, you know, uh, th these different secondary offices. I mean, we've seen. I mean, we've seen it swing back and forth. And I think in in the instance of superintendent, it, it will be it will be interesting because one thing that the governor didn't specify was whether the uh, uh, in his view the the person should be appointed by. Uh, the board, the state board of education, or by the governor himself. Now, the way the board's constructed, I mean, the governor has control basically with his appointees, so it should be tantamount one to the other. But uh, I think, I think initially there will probably, uh, uh, at least from what I've heard and observed, you know, in in kind of this rollout of the conversation, is that uh, there's a there's more probably pushback initially to the to the idea um, uh, of having uh, of having this this particular position appointed but you know it, we have a Republican legislature it is an idea that has uh, that has come up more than once in the past so we'll see in this instance if the governor does as you say decide to put some political capital on the line can he can he push it through and get it to uh, uh, get it to a ballot and see what the see what the voters say right I mean this is a another step in the consolidation of executive power from the governor and you know I think that he's you know, seen very little resistance from the legislature in terms of you know, his ability to do this. Uh, we saw it this in his first term uh, or his first year in office, then the first legislative session, a real consolidation in power in the governor's office. And I think that, you know, one of the things that that's worth, regardless of what you think about the governor, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, I think that it's worth considering that the reason that we have uh, that we've spread executive powers around other offices than just the governor in Oklahoma, that's not an accident. You know, that, that's, you know, very, that's in a very intentional check on the power that the governor should ex exercise in, in the 
state of Oklahoma, and we should think long and hard about the consequences of putting more power in the hands of one person. I mean, that's that's a real you know decision that we need to make as Oklahomans, and it, it shouldn't just be made as, well, I'm not able to get done what I'm able to get done. Well, there's maybe a reason you're not able to get that done. You know, that's that's not an accident. That was intentional. And then I, I think the, the other side of that, too, is that if you're the governor and you're out saying, you know, the reason that education's in the state that it's in right now is because I don't have the ability to make these reforms unilaterally or without, you know, having to, you know, get the, the support of another statewide elected official. That's just, you know, I, I, I don't think that that's, you know, a real reflection of reality right now because the governor already controls an overwhelming majority of the Board of Education through his appointments. Uh, and then the real reason that education's in the si- situation that it's in is because it's been underfunded for over a decade now. You know, the funding issue here doesn't change if the governor has the authority here. You know, what the governor really needs to do is put forward a plan at the legislature to get funding into education. But I think the, but I think it is not all about the money, even though that seems to be kind of the default conversation most of the time when we talk about education. It's about making meaningful reforms. I mean, there are significant changes to education that, de- that need to be made uh, that have been proven successful across uh, states, across the nation. And I think that as you get this into the, you know, into the conversation, it kind of changes the whole dynamic because it isn't all about the money. But when we talk about changing how that person comes into the office, I think we don't know. I mean, the voters will have to be convinced that this is a good thing. Two years ago in South Carolina, the voters had this option uh, uh, put before them, and they rejected it uh, after a very after a very strong campaign battle on both sides. So I think I think the public who always, when you poll them, say the number one issue that they care about the most is education. That when they look at uh, someone talking about making changes that directly start to impact uh, what's going to happen with with respect to education, they're going to at least, I think, uh, take a, pay a little more attention than they would maybe for a lot of other issues that come down the pike uh, that have legislative consequences. Well, staying on the subject of Governor Stitt, he gives himself an A grade for his first year in office. Stitt tells the Tulsa world, while his administration could always do better, he's really proud of what he has accomplished. Ryan, what do you think of this grade? Well, I think it's kind of ridiculous that we asked the governor to grade himself to begin with. I mean, you know, I think you know, Randy Creel just yeah. kind of, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, mean, I, I get it. It's, it's kind of a beginning of the year, end of the year story. That's just, you know, what we always do. But, you know, to ask the governor to do that. But if you are the governor, maybe have a little humility uh, in, in your answer. I mean, I, I think that, you know, but I don't, I don't know that this necessarily Governor Stitt's style. I mean, he's, he's kind of, you know, that's, you know, and he's, he's branded himself that way. Um, I think that the governor did make some significant, uh, movement on real, uh, policy, uh, policy planks this legislative session and this first year in office. I think that he did a lot to change the tone at the legislature, uh, to even, even absent the statutory changes to executive power, just his presence, uh, you know, the force that he brought to the legislature and his ability to walk into legislative offices and have legislators come to him and really move the legislature, bend the legislature to his will. Uh, I mean, that's that's a significant change over the last eight years that we had under the previous administration. Um, and, you know, so whether you like that or not, I mean, it's he's been effective at that. Um, I think that an A grade, especially in the context of the, the fight uh, that the governor has picked 
with the uh, the state's uh, tribal leadership uh, and and tribes and and, uh, and indigenous nations. You know where we are right now with that. You know seems to be this unnecessary fight with one of the leading, if not the leading, economic driver in the state of Oklahoma right now. Um, it's hard to say that you you're getting an A when you've picked an unnecessary fight and you're unable to you know see any sort of resolution out of it other than hiring lawyers at you know five hundred six hundred dollars an hour with no end in sight. Neva. Well, I think I think the governor. Has had a good first year. It was a honeymoon period where he had the good fortune to come in when uh, it was a good budget year. They had a surplus. They were able to do things. He had a, a Republican legislature that he was able to, as Ryan says, work with very aggressively to accomplish some things that uh, uh, that he wanted to see in terms of consolidation and, and being able to uh, strengthen the overall position of the governor. But I think now as we move into year two, this is where the rubber will meet the road. <laughs> yes. And this is where, from a legislative perspective, there will be this necessity on both sides to uh, get along well and to have the give and take that comes with the legislative process, and particularly where the budget's concerned. I mean, the governor, um, coming from the business background and perspective he does, sees the budgeting process, I think, much differently than someone who has been immersed into uh, government and politics policy and 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 the uh, the kind of the whole apparatus of, of government and the agency so it's it's going to be a much uh, more precarious situation I think this time and one that is uh, uh, also as we always have to have to talk about is with the backdrop of a political campaign mm-hmm. season looming and the implications of that the governor's not up for for re-election but the governor will be uh, at the kind of at the forefront I mean at least as the leader of his party to be able to uh, ensure that uh, that there that there is a good election year and that the folks come back uh, that are seeking re-election in his party and that uh, that there's this kind of across the board effort to continue to move his agenda. So I'm I'm very interested to see what he rolls out in terms of uh, his uh, state of the state. I think one of the big question marks still is this whole issue of Medicaid expansion. He has said yeah. he had a plan uh, that he was going to roll out. It is uh, yet to you know be there with any definition. And we have a state question on the ballot in November that uh, uh, early polling uh, that has come out from various groups indicates that it is still extremely popular. If the vote were today, it probably would pass. Uh, So I think that is, uh, and when you look at the constitutional impact, if that were to pass on the budget and the long-term implications for the state of Oklahoma, this is something that's going to happen on the governor's watch and this legislature's watch. Uh, uh, And so it's going to be... uh, it, it's going to be those those types of issues are going to be really uh, upfront and key to the you know to the success. I think, however anyone wants to grade it, that's that's really where the proof is going to be on success or failure. And flat revenues uh, at the legislature right. this year that's going to be a huge deal. And then we're already seeing, as Neva said, the the campaign context. I mean, last year there were a handful of kind of flashpoint bills uh, that the governor weighed in on, permitless carry being an example of one of those. But, but that was the, just a holdover but, from the previous. Yeah, the but, but for the for the most part, yeah, kind of the, the, all the grownups got yeah. together and we're like, we're actually going to govern this year, uh, or at least we're going to try to. Um, and a lot of the, the really, uh, out there stuff, you know, just died early in session. It'll be interesting to see if, if the legislative leaders give the gift to the governor of taking a lot of the, the more extreme pieces and, and, uh, 
and frivolous pieces of legislation like the year of the Bible and the MAGA license plate and stuff like If they take that off his plate early and say, we're not going to give these things a hearing, or do we see this, you know, really ramp up into kind of the same, you know, partisanship that I think, you know, was a, a real albatross for Governor Fallon mm-hmm. um, and her ability to really lead in the state, or does, you know, Stitt get wrapped up in this and become just another partisan actor out of the Capitol? Well, and, and are these issues that really have a lot of traction and a lot of popularity and a lot of support among Oklahoma voters? And I think that's a question. I mean, it's easy to, to uh, uh, in some instances, look at these on the surface and say, you know, why would we, you know, why would we have a conversation about this? But in many instances, they're highly, you know, highly uh, popular and well-supported among rank-and-file, just regular Joe voter out there across the state of Oklahoma. And that's where these lawmakers will begin to hear that as as the session uh, starts up. And of course, we'll be talking more about the bills as we get nearer to the legislative session coming up in February. And Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management.